1 John chapter 4. I moved my bookmark here. All right. So this morning as we're in 1 John chapter 4, we're going to begin with a monumental verse, and that is verse 19. The verse 19 in chapter 4 says this, We love him because he first loved us. And so in any type of relationship with God, if you've ever heard anybody say, I love God, they can only say that because God has first reached down to them, touched them, and said, I love you. He's the initiator. He's the author. He's the beginner. He's the source of all true love. Now, as I quoted a couple weeks ago, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. You know, what is love? And the question becomes, what does love mean? What, how do we know love? Well, the, the world throws all kinds of definitions around about love. And most of it is complete bunk. Most of it is empty. It's words without meaning. It's a song without a lived out life, without action. And so he begins this morning by saying, we love because he first loved us. So if God's the initiator, which John has already written in chapter 4, verse 10, we see that he writes there this very verse. He says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and to prove it, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, which is just a big term that means he has made Jesus sent him in the flesh to be the payment that turns away the wrath of God that we deserve. Nobody's outside of that. We've all sinned. Romans tells us that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if that is in fact the case, and then God says he loves us, but doesn't make a way to show us that he loves us, then it's just words. It's just talk. Uh, And you've heard the phrase, our modern scholars would say, put up or shut up. If you say you love me, show me. And we live in the show me state, right? Well, you're, you're, we're blessed because Jesus didn't say that he loved us and then walk away and say, hey, I love you guys. Good luck. He said, I love you and let me show you. And so while we were still sinning against him, Romans also says, Christ died for the ungodly. I love that because I'm among those ranks. I am ungodly without God's grace. And so in verse 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. So everything that we do to say that we love God doesn't earn us salvation. He showed us he loved us. He provided a great salvation. We have the choice to decide whether or not we're going to receive it. Just like at Christmas, believe it or not, you can say, I don't want this gift. And so we can say that. And at the same time, we have the opportunity to respond to his love And anything we do out of that, if it's the love of Christ that compels us, then it will be out of gratitude. Anything we do should be out of gratitude, not feeling like we have to do it, but instead being freed up to do it as a response of his love. And so turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Because as I was thinking about this passage, it made me think of Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. And here it says that one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and he sat down to eat. 
Now, I think this is interesting because Jesus said, love your enemies. And then one of the Pharisees who most of the time when you hear them spoken of in scripture, it's kind of like they're arguing with each other. They're, they're arguing with Jesus and Jesus is correcting them lovingly, but he rebukes them strongly. And so it says here that one of the Pharisees actually asked him to eat with him. He asked Jesus over to eat. And so he went to the Pharisee's house and he sat down to eat. He didn't say, no, you're unclean. I'm not going to your house. You're a hypocrite. He said, okay, here I come. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. And she stood at his feet behind him, weeping. She began to wash his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his head and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself. Any of you guys have an internal monologue that just never shuts off? I do. All the time I'm thinking stuff. You're talking to yourself. That's what that is, you know. So uh, if you're among those like me, all the time I'm talking to myself. And many times I become an echo chamber, and I really agree with myself a lot, by the way. But he says to himself, this man, he's making a judgment about Jesus, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So he's made a judgment about Jesus, He's made a judgment about this woman. And Jesus answered him. Have you ever thought that Jesus knows your thoughts? So this man is thinking to himself, kind of covering up his outward appearance. He's got these thoughts and Jesus answers his thoughts. Have you ever had Jesus answer your thoughts? It's a scary thing. And most of the time it's when we become a little self-righteous. We might judge somebody else. But this man is corrected by Jesus about what he thinks. And it makes me think that God does really care what we think about, not just what we say outside. And so he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. He doesn't force it on himself. He goes, will you hear me, essentially? And Simon says, teacher, say it. He says, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had had nothing with which to repay him, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, Simon, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now, I don't know how this woman felt about being a teaching illustration. Can you, have you ever thought about that? Like, hey, I'm standing here. I can hear you. But in the meantime, it doesn't seem like she cares so much. He says, do you see this woman? I entered your house, speaking to Simon. You gave me no water for my feet, because it was customary to wash someone's feet when they came in your house. Um, but she washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss. And some of you are like, well, aren't you grateful? You know, how would you like it if you walked into somebody's house and they kissed you? It's a cultural thing. It'd be like a hug. But he says, you gave me no kiss, 
But this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, which was customary, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil, expensive, extravagant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same shows little love. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now I want to point out something here. We have an example of someone who knew she was loved. I wonder, and this is just for thoughtful consideration, I wonder if this is the woman that was called in adultery. I wonder if this is someone that he had met along the way who was obviously in sin and he showed her compassion like she had never experienced before so much that she went back to her house, grabbed this frequent fragrant oil, which many times would be a retirement plan. It would be a nest egg. It would be something that they could later sell in order to perpetuate their future after they couldn't earn money anymore. This was extravagant. So she comes back. She breaks this open. She anoints his feet. She washes his feet with her hair. Ladies, can you imagine taking your hair that you spend so much work on and wiping somebody's dirty feet down with? She's not doing this because Jesus said, hey, you must wash my feet. You must serve. You must do this. She's doing it because she was loved. She, can't, she wants to do anything she can put her hands to. What does she have? She has tears. She's thankful. She's grateful. I'll wash his feet with my tears. I don't have a bucket of water. I'll use my hair. I don't have a rag. I'll use this oil. It's all I have. She lavishly pours out love on Jesus because she has to. No, because she's already been forgiven. That's, that's the love that pours out of somebody that knows who they are and what Jesus has done for them. Her works did not earn her forgiveness. Her works did not earn her forgiveness. Your works cannot earn you forgiveness ever. And if they could, Jesus wouldn't have died on the cross. Ever. Her response out of being forgiven is just, she's gushing. She's overwhelmed. So, we love because he first loved us. And if you don't have that kind of like overflowing love, either get to know Jesus and what he has done for you personally, not just the world, but for you, and let him sort through your past and the things that you've been through. On my best days, I recognize how much of a mess I am. On my best days, my mess doesn't rob me of joy. It actually creates more. Because on my best days, I recognize exactly who I am in the light of God's eternity, and I recognize how much I've truly been forgiven. And I could write a list, and it would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And I won't do that, because I'm forgiven. Yeah, you can ask me personally. I'll share with you if you want. But I don't want to dwell on the past, but at the same time, sometimes... Good reflection on my past brings me back to the feet of my Savior that I still need. Because but for the grace of God, I would still go back there. But he's changed me. He's made me new. I no longer even have a taste for it. So, verse 20. He says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must also love his brother. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten by him or of him. So I love this because in John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus actually said, uh, love one another. And then he gives a specific way to love one another. He says, love one another as I have loved you. And he says, by this, all will know that you follow me, that you love one another. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, it said this, though you haven't seen him, you love him. I think this is interesting because if you look at what we just read, he says, if you say you love God and yet you hate your brother, then you're a liar and the truth is not in you. He doesn't say if you love God, he says if you say you love God. And many people substitute saying something versus doing something. And that shows that they're not actually following God because the love of God is not only spoken about, but it's proven in action. So if we are truly filled with the Spirit of God, if we truly follow His example, we will not only say that we love people, we'll do our diligence to love people practically. So, John says this is how people will know that you're the disciples of Jesus. And I love this because he says, how can you say you love your, if you don't love your brother who you can see, how can you say you love God who you cannot see? This is another way that we show that we love God. So 1 Peter 1, 8 says, though you haven't seen God and yet you love him, you're full of rejoicing over him. This is proof that you have the spirit of God. But what I want to point out is what he's saying here, and he said it before, it's not possible to love God and not love his people also. One of these things can't go without the other. If you love God, you'll love who has been born of God. And if you love who's been born of God, you're going to love God himself. And it's interesting because in Jesus, faith is lived out through love. And if you turn to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, Paul writes this. He says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. He's talking to many Jewish believers, many people that are tempted to go back to Judaism, and instead of living out the commandments, instead of living out of love, they're doing outward works to prove that they are what they say they are. Instead of loving people, they're doing outward works of the law. So they were, you know, we don't go this many feet from our house on the Sabbath, and we're circumcised. Maybe that's not you. Maybe it would be, I read my Bible twice a day, and I pray this many minutes a day, and I was baptized at camp one year, and, or I was baptized a year ago. But those outward works are supposed to be proof that the inward change has happened. So he says, if you love God, the point is not that you're circumcised or that you've been baptized or that you go to church twice a week or, or whatever you might hold to be your sacrament, if you will. But he's saying in Galatians 5 verse 6, I already lost my spot. 
5 verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision, outward works, nor uncircumcision avails or gains anything, but faith is working through love. Faith is shown by love, not only received, but also lived out. And so if you go down to verse 14, he also says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. So Paul's referring to this law of love. Now, if you remember with me, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 39, or I'm going to turn, I think, to Matthew, but also it says the same thing in Mark. Matthew 22, verse 37. Bible drill, go! Matthew 22, verse 37. Verse 34 says, When the Pharisees heard that, that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, everyone's favorite, a lawyer, asked him a question. And they were testing Jesus, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And what they were saying was, What's the greatest commandment? If I was going to pick one, what should I do? And so they were thinking he was going to single out one thing over another and prove that he wasn't God. But what he did was he, he narrowed it down to two commandments that are really one commandment. They're the Siamese twin commandment. They can't be separated. Verse 37, Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two commandments, he says, hang all of the law and the prophets. So he doesn't pick one book. He doesn't pick just the law books. He doesn't just pick the prophetic books. He says, really, all of the Old Testament can be summed up in this. Love God supremely and love people. Love people like I've loved people. Because if you love God supremely, you're going to love the object of his love. And so faith in Jesus is lived out through love, and that love is shown by keeping the commandments. And I love this because the same theme is kept in 1 John 3, verse 11, 14, 18, and 23. You can look those up on your own time. He basically says the same thing over and over and over. And I've told you, and you know this, that if you're going to teach anything, you're going to teach the same thing multiple times because repetition sticks in the memory. And so the world may not love its siblings, right? Here we are, Thanksgiving, Christmas time. We're going to be around our families. Sometimes families can be hard to love. Now, some of you don't have that problem, but not every family is that way. There's always these rivalries going on. And the body of Christ is no different. We tend to fight about stuff. Typically, it's stuff that doesn't matter, but we don't love one another. Love one another doesn't mean love those that you always agree with. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love is despite what someone deserves. But the world does not love its siblings, but God's people do. We love those begotten of him just like we are. So he says, I write this that you may know 
if you love the children of God. Verse 2. Verse 2. I'm going to begin in 5 verse 1. He says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love, not God, but he says we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep his commandments. So again, they're not mutually exclusive. He says, we know that we love the children of God if we love God and we keep his commandments. So who are the children of God? Have you ever heard somebody say, well, we're all children of the same God. We're all the children of God. Uh, The Bible teaches that there is a specific group that are children of God. And in John chapter 1, John, the same writer of this epistle, uh, specifies for us who are the children of God. And guess what? It's not the whole world. You cannot be a child of God unless you've been born of God. But John chapter 1 verse 10 says this, Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, speaking of the Jewish people. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. How do you know if you're a child of God? You receive Jesus Christ, not who you think he is, not who you've made him to be, but as he is. And so he says, to those who received Jesus, and I would submit to you, to those who continue to decide to receive Jesus for who he says he is, to them he gave the right. Now, if you want to claim a right as an American citizen, those rights can be taken from you. But if you want to claim the right to be a child of God, you have a right to be a child of God if you receive Jesus Christ. He says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. He says also, to those who believe in his name. Does that mean that they believe that his name is Jesus Christ? Or does that mean that they believe in his character and what he said that he's accomplished in his person, who he was, who he is, and who he is to come? He says, who were born not of blood. You know, we are all children of our parents because of the blood that flows through our veins. We maintain that we have the same lifeblood within us because of our family tree. Whether you like it or not, those are your blood, right? But in this case, he's saying, they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God, by God's will given the right to life, not just life on earth, not just 70 plus or minus years, but life eternally. We've been born of God. So these are the children of God. So we know that we love them if we love God supremely. How do I love my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Put Jesus first in everything. If you want to love your neighbor, love God more than you love them. Care about what God thinks more than they care about. Seriously. We struggle with that, right? We have the fear of man built into us. Proverbs says the fear of man is actually a trap. It's a snare. When you care more about what your neighbor thinks than what God thinks, 
that's a trap. That's a snare. It will keep you from the fear of God supremely that will ultimately lead you to in a better relationship with them. So fear God, keep his commandments means that I have to care more about what God thinks than what my peers think. I have to care more about what God thinks than what my family thinks. I have to care more about what God thinks than what the government thinks. I have to care more about what God thinks than what my political affiliation is. God has to be first no matter what. More than your boss, more than your spouse. Care what God thinks and then your relationships with other people will be what they're supposed to be and there will be a blessing attached. So we know that we love God's people if we love God supremely. We know that we love God's people if we keep God's commandments. Keeping God's commandments is a practical way to love one another that will last for eternity. And it will also be a benefit in this life. And so let's look at the commandments. Because he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, how many of you believe, don't have to raise your hands, that because now we're in Christ, we don't really even know, need to know what the commandments are? That's true. We, we do need to know what they are. We need to follow the commandments. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. So if we are Christ Jesus' followers, we will naturally fulfill the law. Now, our fulfilling the law is not what saves us, but it proves that we're saved. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he's going to go on in the next verse to say, and my commandments will not be a burden to you. They won't be too heavy to carry. And so Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. What are the commandments that he's talking about? Now, I will submit to you the commandment he is talking about is the ultimate commandment, which is love God and love your neighbor. But what I want to submit to you is that the Ten Commandments teach that same thing. He just summed it up because he knows we're simple, right? He gave him one commandment in the beginning, right? He said, don't partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was too hard for us. We're like, man, God makes things complicated. No, we did. We couldn't obey one command, so he gave us a whole bunch. He's like, let me get more specific. And if you don't think he got more specific, read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He keeps repeating it. He went from one commandment that we couldn't keep, and he said, okay, let me go get more specific. Here's 613. Well, what do I do with this? It's in there. What do I do with that? It's in there. But all of them started with Exodus chapter 20, the top 10, where God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I saved you. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. He got very specific. No images from any corner of the earth, anywhere. He says, you shall not bow down to them. You shall not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me. And look at this, keep my commandments. Loving him and keeping his commandments are really all the same command. It's all built together. If you love me, Jesus said, you'll keep my commandments. 
And then later he said, why do you keep saying you love me and yet you don't keep my commandments? It seems to be a theme. I love God. How come you don't keep God's commandments? Well, I don't have to anymore. Okay, not for salvation, but don't you want to? And so that's the reality. He says in verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. You shall work six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is to be a, a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. He gets specific, right? Is that for today? I would submit to you that there's blessing attached with obeying that. Say you own a business. You're loving your neighbor by keeping this command because they get a day off. You're loving your family because they get a day off. We all need rest. We're so frazzled. We think if we just, it's one day a week. And yet God says that if you obey this, it'll actually extend your life. How many of us have the faith to obey that one? Verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Simple, but blessing. He says, okay, you shall not kill. You can't murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. No lying. And then here's the tough one for Americans. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your male servant or his male servant or his female servant or his tractor, I mean his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. We spend our whole lives wanting what our neighbor's got. There's a phrase called keeping up with the Joneses, and we would all say, I don't do that. Yes, we do. I'm that way. I see a guy with a tool. I'm like, I need that. That's not a want. I can't live without it. But all of that to say, I'm making light of it, but the reality is there's a lot of freedom in the commandments. The commandments are not meant to be a burden. They're meant to be protection and blessing. If I'm not coveting just my neighbor's stuff, I actually release a burden for myself I was never meant to bear. Uh, then I don't have to take on the overtime. I don't have to take on the, the extra hours. I don't have to take on a second job because I'm not trying to buy the next new phone or the next whatever, car. So anyway, hobby horse, it's a reality. So how can keeping these practically affect our brothers and sisters in Christ? There's a story in 2 Samuel chapter 11, very famous story. David's biggest blunder of all time, many would probably consider it. And David, instead of going off to battle, he stays home from battle and he sends out Joab and all of their army. And as they go out to battle and fight the king's battles, David's hanging at home. And as he's hanging at home, he's up on the rooftop. It's cool. He looks down. And if you've ever been in the, the city that's south there of the Temple Mount, it's uh, the area where David lived. It was his, essentially his little kingdom there. And um, it's called the city of David. So it's on a hill. And his house was at the top. 
And as he looked down over his area, he noticed that there was a woman. And she was on the top of a house, and she was bathing. And as he looked at her, it says that he gazed upon her, and then he sent his servants after her. And it says there that his servants said, don't you know that that's so-and-so's daughter? And don't you know that that's Uriah's wife? And he says, go and inquire of her. And then it says that he took her and he lay with her. Now, David was a king and he had a problem with ladies. One of the rules of kings that God laid out, you shall not multiply wives. Did David multiply wives? Yes. Does that make it okay? No. But the Bible tells the story as it is. And so David, as he's looking out, he sees this lady. He has her brought up to his house. For whatever reason, she was compliant. They lay together. Guess what happens? Sin, opportunity meets, conceives death, or in this case, conceives a child. And so David's like, oh no, I got to cover my tracks. So he calls for Joab to send Uriah from the battlefront. Uriah comes home. David tries to get him drunk and feed him a bunch of food, get him all happy. He says, hey, go, go hang out at your house. So he goes and sees his wife, but he comes home. He sleeps on the front doorpost or the door, the, essentially the porch of the, of the king's house. David's like, why aren't you going to your house? Well, my whole army that I'm a leader of are out in the field and they're battling. And the ark of the Lord is out there with the battle in a tent. I can't sleep in my house, which is kind of an indictment against David because that's what he's doing. But my point is, Uriah eventually never goes into his wife. Therefore, David can't act like it's Uriah's kid. And so he goes, hey, Joab, take Uriah out to the battle and put him really close to the line. He's essentially telling him, wink, wink, have him killed. How could this have stopped if David, number one, would have been off to battle, if he wouldn't have coveted his neighbor's wife, if he wouldn't have committed adultery, and, and the domino effect goes on. My point is, he did not love his neighbor because he didn't keep the commandments. If he'd have kept the commandments, his relationship with Uriah would have been good. He'd have been able to keep that guy that was a good leader in the battalion for him, and whoever else got killed in the battle when he sent Uriah too close to the battlefront. Sin, the breaking of the commandments, always means death. And ultimately, the child that was created out of that relationship, God says, I'm going to take him. And so that child that was created from their sin had to die too. Now, God redeemed the situation. David eventually repents. But for the rest of David's life, his family was in turmoil because of his compromise. He did not parent like he should have. There were consequences beyond that created his family. And if you read the story of David and his family story, it's bad. It's Jerry Springer bad. I mean, there's some stories where I'm like, I don't even want it. I feel yucky after reading this. But sin always does things that way. So the fruit of disobedience had consequences for more than just David. If you've ever thought and had this thought go through your mind, well, I'm only sinning and it only affects me. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Our sin affects each one of us. It hurts the body of Christ. It's a, a shame and a, and a, and a witness that uh, causes people to blaspheme. 
uh, unbelievers don't have a good testimony of what Jesus does. And so my point is, uh, he says, if you love the people of God, you'll keep his commandments. So real quick, verse 3, he goes on to say, and we're going to read 3 through 5, because I've gone on and on and on. But he says there in verse 3, This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Faith overcomes. Faith overcomes the temptation to sin. Faith overcomes uh, the battle that we're in. So Jesus spoke about spiritual and physical burdens. The law was never meant to be a burden. It was actually meant to be protection and blessing. He says, if you do these things, you shall live by them. But Jesus spoke about spiritual and physical burdens that the leaders of his day had placed on the common people. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 1 through 4, Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and he says, you bind up heavy burdens and you place them on people and you yourselves don't lift a, thing, a finger to carry them. He says, these people, these Pharisees and these scribes, they sit in the seat of Moses. They, they essentially are keepers of the law. The things that they say to do, he says, do them, but don't do as they do because their anthem was do as I say, not as I do. They said they love God, but they didn't really fulfill the law. And so Jesus warned them about them. And then Jesus spoke of a different burden. Jesus never said you won't have any burdens. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. In um, Matthew chapter 11, he says, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. It's still a burden, but it's a lightened burden. It's a lightened load. And I think that it's a lightened load because I don't know about you guys, but the less freedom I have, it's going to sound wrong, the less freedoms that I have, the more free I am. Does that make sense? Probably doesn't. I've gone through a season of my life where I had 41 hours a week where I know that I got to be a certain place. And so now all of a sudden, my full-time job has been taken from me, and now I have freedoms. But what I'm finding is the more free time I have, the more likely I am to mess things up. So now I'm having to build back up some, some walls, some fences, so I don't run outside of the yard. I have to build in some constraints so that I can stay within them and actually be free in them. And maybe that doesn't translate. My point is the law makes things simple. Can I do this or not? Well, does it cause you to break the commandments? Then no. Can I do this or not? Does it cause me to break the commandments? Yes. Okay, then you can't do it. You know, and, and it simplifies things. We don't have to be our own God and decide what's right or wrong or even let someone else be our own God whose opinions will always change. God doesn't change. What's wrong today will be wrong tomorrow. What's righteous today will be righteous tomorrow. And so he sets us free by giving us laws and rules and regulations to free us, not to burden us. And the law was a burden to anyone trying to earn God's favor. So Jesus, I love this, took our burden. What was our burden? Sin, shame, guilt, fear. He took that upon himself. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God through him. And so he took our burden 
He took our guilt. He took our shame. Even the consequences of our sins. He took them upon himself. The wrath of God that we deserved. He sets us free. And then not only did he defeat the power of sin, not only did he give us his Holy Spirit, but he actually defeated death. He took our burden and he gave us his. His burden's light. His presence is now carried within us. And so as we close Jesus said this. He said, we just read in 1 John that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. But John says this, as he writes about Jesus, he says, be of good cheer. Don't worry about this thing called life where things can happen that are bad. He says, I've already overcome the world. And we witness him doing that in the gospel. But Hebrews chapter 11, these groups of people, if you will, they, they've overcome the world by faith. And I'm just going to read a few verses. Verse 30, he says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. They didn't do it. God did. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. He says, what more shall I say for the time would fail to tell about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah from the book of Judges, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith, look at this, they subdued kingdoms. They worked righteousness. They obtained the promises of God. They stopped the mouths of lions, Daniel, quenched the violence of fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness, they were made strong. They became valiant in battle. They turned to flight the armies of foreigners. Women received dead, raised to life again. The the mom of Lazarus. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and in caves of the earth. If God brought them through that litany of crazy, how much more can he bring us through our little battles? that seemed that big in the moment. By faith, we overcome. We have victory. And if you turn with me to one last place, Revelation chapter 12. The final battle takes place. If you've read Job, you know that Satan plays this this battle behind the scenes. He's kind of the, the ruler of his henchmen, the, the demons, and he's always battling against God's elect, God's people, in the spiritual realities, just like Ephesians chapter 6 says. But what it says is that in Revelation 12, there was a war that broke out in heaven. Michael, the archangel, and his angels fought with the dragon, a picture of Satan, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. God's going to send Satan out of heaven. He's no longer going to have access to God's presence. And so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And then John hears a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength 
and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren who accused them before God day and night and has been cast down. And this is how they overcame Satan himself. He says they overcame by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death. They overcame anything that this life could throw at them. They overcame trusting in the blood of Jesus to be enough to save them, testifying of his saving work on the cross, telling others, this is what Jesus has done for me. It's done. But then they testify of his salvation that continues saving us. If your last story about God saving or doing something awesome in your life was from 10 years ago, I want to encourage you, ask him to do it again. He's the God of today, not yesterday. Testifying of his salvation that continues. But also, they overcame by being living testimonies of Jesus defeating death because they did not love their lives to the death. Or one other way to put it is, they weren't afraid to die anymore. They weren't afraid to die. The worst that this world can do is take your life. And if it takes your life, guess where you get to go? If you're in Christ, the battle's won. That doesn't make it easy, but that makes it true. There's joy had in battles when you recognize the worst thing that can happen to you is you go to be with your father. And so that's the victory. Victory is ours. So this morning, we celebrate that victory because as we take communion over the next few minutes, we've been not only invited to 